0: I'm Barry Fern and this is the Leading Conversations podcast, brought to your ears wherever you're listening in partnership with Lane Media and the Marketing Society Scotland. Thank you for joining us if you're a new listener and welcome back if you've tuned in before. Today I'm joined by David Cotter and Sarah Bailey, two members of the Marketing Society's Future Leaders Advisory Group, aka FLAG. And today we're going to dissect what it means to have an entrepreneurial mindset, and how this compares to being an entrepreneur. David is brand manager at Edrington, working on the infamous, famous grouse brand. While studying international business at Strathclyde Business School, David was runner-up of the Marketing Society Scotland Star Marketing Student at the Star Awards in 2018, which led to an intern placement at Edrington, initially working across insights and customer marketing. Sarah is Marketing and Account Manager at Studio LR. She has already experienced a varied career, including spells working at Hibbs, Edrington, Durham Distillery, O Beach and Ibiza, and is a presenter and regular event speaker. Sarah was the Marketing Student of the Year in 2019 and is the recently appointed Chair of the Marketing Society's Flag Group.
1: Hi, Barry. Thanks for having us.
0: Good to be here. You are very welcome. Today we're going to have a chat about entrepreneurship and how it compares but complements being an entrepreneur. We're going to tap into my guest viewpoints on what can be a misunderstood topic and see if we can help bring clarity and maybe some inspiration to our listeners. So welcome again to the Leading Conversations podcast. I'm delighted to have you both here. Let's kick off with a bit of background, shall we? Sarah, tell us how you found yourself here today.
1: So, as you said, Barry, it's kind of a bit of a, a mixed journey, really. So, I'm originally from uh, Durham in the northeast England, and then I came up to Edinburgh originally to study languages. Um, so, I was doing French and Spanish at Edinburgh Uni, and I got involved with um, organising events, um, working in clubs, and I realised I really enjoyed business, was doing a couple of different business modules, and so then switched to studying business full-time.
0: And at that point, was was there a story with one of your professors or something?
1: Yeah. So um, so basically I was working in the club um, and obviously you obviously have a kind of a late finish and the marketing lecture was at 9am on a Thursday and I used to work in the club on a Wednesday night. And I used to bring in my breakfast and eat it in the lecture because I would have gone to bed at, you know, four five in the morning had a couple of hours sleep and then go into the lecture um and I'd come in I'd be wearing trackies my glasses um eating my breakfast and she came over and um and I was like oh I hope it's all right like I'm really sorry that I'm eating my breakfast in the lecture and we got chatting and she kind of didn't really know that that's what I was doing in my spare time. And honestly, off the back of that, that was how I got nominated um, for the Marketing Society's, uh, the Marketing Student of the Year. I can be totally honest, it was not because I was had the highest marks in the class by any means. I think she just recognised that I was kind of working alongside my studies, um, starting to get a bit more understanding of marketing in a real life situation you know taking it outside of the textbooks um so you know we're still very good friends now we still meet up um and so it's nice that a lecturer can recognize someone's passion or appreciation for marketing and wanting to get a bit more involved outside of the classroom as well
0: that's dedication if you ask me (laughs) Um, and David, we've discussed before in uh, on this podcast that there's no right or wrong
2: path into marketing or advertising, um, but what's been your pathway into marketing so far? I feel I was always destined to probably work in the drinks industry. My first job when I was at university was working behind the bar in the hospitality suites at the Hydro, which kind of combined my love of going to concerts and going to shows with so I basically got paid to pull pints and watch the shows. I've, I've seen the still game show at least 20 times. <laughs> i <pull> um, you. <laughs> then we got to, then I became a bartender and a waiter in TGI Friday's on Buchanan Street, which was an eye opener um, in many, many ways. But it taught me all about cocktails. It taught me all about mixed drinks. It taught me the importance of salesmanship because obviously in a chain place like that, you're given targets where we need to try and upsell this. We need to try and push this because we've got a promotion on. And that like, got me thinking about consumer society. I was studying marketing and international business at the same time, but it got me thinking about consumer behaviour, which led me to the marketing society where for Staff Clyde, we had to put in a little bit of a brief if we wanted to be nominated. I wrote a brief on consumer behaviour within TJ Fridays on a Friday night. Um, and luckily enough, got nominated, didn't win, unlike Sarah. So I'm glad we covered the winner first. But <laughs> we then got a placement at Uh, It was Maxim at the time who then became Edgington. And then I just refused to leave really. I just worked my (laughs) way up through the roles. I became a graduate. I worked there for two years uh, during COVID working in the uh, the category development and the insights team where the brief genuinely was what the hell is going on. There was no, we just had to work out what was going on in the market and how we could make the most of it. Then went to work on a brand like the Sours brand, another iconic brand in the UK market. Um, as it was going through an unbelievable period of growth in my time on the brand, I think the volumes doubled mm-hmm. and it got to the point where we actually had sours on allocation where we could only give a set amount to each customer, wow. almost the same way you would with some of these really expensive whiskies, such was the consumer demand. And then last January, so almost a year ago now, I became the famous ghost brand manager working on the UK's number one whisky. And that is allowing me to learn everything from a branding point of view, but it's allowing me to also use my pride experience working in insights and customer marketing in order to try and piece it all together to be the best brand manager I can be. Quite a journey so far in just a short period of time.
0: Sarah, I recall when we first met, that you told me you were unsure about whether you should talk to people about your time working in marketing and events in Edinburgh and and Ibiza in clubs. Would you mind elaborating on this for our listeners?
1: Yeah, of course. So yeah, it was kind of always a decision when I was applying for jobs or even at networking events. It's, do you stick to this? or I've worked in these big corporate offices and companies or do I touch on the fact that I actually loved working in events and clubs Um, and so I would say that that was probably the best springboard um, to gain an understanding of marketing because if you think so in a kind of a nightclub setting or event setting you are dealing so directly with your consumers, you're overhearing what people are saying, and often you know, they've had a drink, so they're probably more yeah. overt about what their opinions are. Um, and as well, so not even just what people are saying about um the brand, but also from a competitor point of view, if you think about George Street alone, think about the number of options where people have to go. Choices, yeah. They are getting out of a taxi and they are picking you or literally the club next door. And it is, you know, it's exactly the same do I go into Tesco? Do I pick up? a Pepsi or a Coke, a Baxter's kind of soup or a Heinz soup. I think sometimes we can get a bit kind of we think that that environment is just for drinks marketing or food marketing, but it's across so many sectors. So I would encourage anyone who kind of does work in sectors like that, talk about it. It's so interesting. Um, And, you know, I was probably 19 at the time working, organizing events for a couple of thousand people a week working with with alcohol brands literally as David was saying it's you know those jobs that you have when you're 19 20 you're engaging with the consumer you're seeing how the on trade works and often I've found that in interviews that I've had employers or people who want to get the most out of you will respond really well to you talking about jobs that you have when you you're younger
0: absolutely and and David even listening to hearing you talk about working at the hydro for example and you know having been fortunate enough to go to the hydro a few times I know there's very different types of gigs so you can go from still game to you know Disney on ice to strictly to Michael Bublé to, to just a rock places band hence for any media owners listening uh, <laughs> yes uh, no just you know there is a real variety of events which means there's going to be a variety of target audiences with different drinks consumption so I can only imagine that that has helped in terms of consumer understanding as you've already touched upon.
2: Yeah exactly and I think it it comes to the point that you learn how to adapt for a different type of consumer and I think for Sarah and myself working in these customer facing roles whilst not directly applicable to marketing what I think it gave me and probably gave Sarah was the confidence and the conviction to go right I do have some sort of knowledge as to what I'm talking about in this industry, because I have seen firsthand consumer behavior. At the end of the day for us, if I'm working on any brand and I want to sell into a restaurant or a bar or a pub, for example, I need to understand the process that the bartenders or the waiters will go through in order to sell it and then make that process as easy as possible for them them to choose our brand. And I think Sarah's example around there's two clubs, how do you make them choose yours? is directly applicable to pretty much all areas of marketing because at the same time you have that issue you have that question on George Street I have that in every aisle Tesco aisle in the country where there's a plethora of brands how do we get them to choose ours
1: exactly I think it kind of humbles yourself a bit as well in you know when we have those conversations around marketing and we can get bogged down with tone of voice and brand and when actually we sometimes do need to take a step back and be a bit more consumer centric and just, okay, what what decisions are people actually make and why are they picking your product over another?
2: Exactly. It's determining what's most important to the person making the decision and then playing on those factors and then the marketing should be the supporting factor, all the activation around that, all the information you can give them at the point of fixture or at the point of choice is to support that decision to make them choose you.
0: I think going back to the, you know, the original question as well. Authenticity is clearly so important these days in terms of you know brands and marketing and 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 how brands um, act, but it actually also reminds me of. You know my early days, the start of my career, when I did have a a career break and I worked in a bar in Greece and I remember coming back and when I was then kind of restarting my kind of professional career, if you like, being unsure as to whether to talk about that. But ultimately, consumer behavior, experience in different cultures, you know, different understanding of the way that people behaved um, was very important in terms of my my future career in marketing. met a lot of people from different cultures as I subsequently ended up traveling around the world for a couple of years. So so these things were, were absolutely important in terms of making decisions about what I wanted to do in the future and thinking about kind of my future career. But let's move into the crux of today's uh, discussion and let's start to unpick the similarities and the differences between intrapreneurs and entrepreneurs.
2: David, what's your overall take on this? When I start to explain this i think you'll find that a key part of my personality is that i love to delve into a topic and learn as much as i possibly can about it but what i came back to after doing all that reading was that an entrepreneur whilst it stands for internal entrepreneur it essentially is the halfway point between an entrepreneur and just a regular employee who does their task goes home i think there's it's essentially a creative thinker to me who has ideas, who is innovative and creative, and we'll touch on qualities later, but who, with the actions that they take in the working day, look to improve the performance of the business that they work for using the resources and the skill set that they have. That's a far more succinct answer than (laughs) I could come up with myself. Thank you, David. Sarah, how would you explain the difference?
1: Yeah, completely echoing David's uh, thoughts for myself. It's how they look at their environment. So for an entrepreneur you know, they're stepping out of the environment. They're looking at any external opportunities. How do they take themselves out of where they currently work and seek to develop a new product or target a new audience? Um, whereas an entrepreneur looks at the environment that they're already in. You know, how can we develop the existing product or innovate or look at the skills that they have or potential people um, who could push the brand a little bit further all within that internal environment so for me it kind of sits in those two bubbles looking at what we already have whereas an entrepreneur maybe steps outside of that
0: yeah and I think you know risk is a massive part of it in terms of being entrepreneurial means taking risk being entrepreneurial ultimately doesn't come with the same level of risk because you're within that security of of employment and and hopefully those entrepreneurs attracted towards working for businesses that have that um allowance for innovation and growth within them that encourage that entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, my own definition of an entrepreneur is is certainly not just a famous one, you know, a Branson or a Sugar or one of the dragons on the telly. It's someone who takes the plunge, takes a risk, and usually at first just survives, but then grows. Businesses failing in year one is actually um, more rare than many people think. About 80% of businesses actually survive. But more than half of small businesses don't last for five years. And obviously the vast majority of the UK economy is, is made up of, of small, small to medium businesses. And then after 10 years, only one in three of those businesses are still around. So that begs the question to me of what kind of makes entrepreneurs fail. And I think it comes down to about five things. I think it comes down to whether there was really a gap in the market in the first place you know, whether that was actually thoroughly researched and understood before the entrepreneur kind of started their business. Cash, naturally, you know, everybody knows the, uh, the cash is king uh, analogy, but not enough finance or running out of cash can be another reason why an entrepreneurial business or an entrepreneur might, might not quite succeed. Team. Team is essential. You know, Not building the right team from a cultural perspective, from an experience perspective, from a personality perspective, having too many people that might be all of a similar kind of mindset can end up trampling over each other. Not knowing or not being able to compete with their competitors. Again, that might come down to to budget or positioning. And ultimately, pricing being wrong. And pricing can be wrong because it's either too high or it's too low. If it's too low, you're not making enough margin. And if it's too high, you're not you're not competitive enough. So there are a number of reasons why an entrepreneurial business can cannot succeed. Um, but I do think there are a lot of similarities between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. But ultimately, when you boil it back down, it does come to risk, attitude to risk, and maybe where you might be in your career at that time. Bringing it back to um, entrepreneurs, um, Sarah, what do you think are the typical behaviours of an entrepreneur?
1: So I would say that an entrepreneur simply has a love for generating ideas for being creative as David was saying but I think there's also that motivation to develop their own company that they work in you know they've got to align with the fact that they want that company to grow so they are generating more ideas being creative but also they have a goal that they want their company to do well and succeed so I think as a behavior they've got to be a person who just wants to do a little bit more whether it's not even just stay a little bit later, it could just be that they want to be a bit more successful, use their skills. I think they're the type of people who kind of want to get the most out of themselves as an individual. They want to show all of their skills they have to hand um, and they want to help their organisation.
0: Build
2: from within. Yes. David? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with any of that. I think Sarah's probably covered it off from the personal point of view. I think if you're working within a company, there's loads that the company can do in order to kind of foster that entrepreneurial thinking. And that is you have to understand that essentially entrepreneurs have taken that risk versus reward element that you spoke about and have weighed up that I would take a monthly salary instead of taking the risk for potential further money to gain. That means that other things might be more important to them. So positive feedback being shared as best practice, I like to think of myself as a little bit of an entrepreneur that matters just as much to me to be honest as some of the monetary rewards that you can get whilst that's important building a culture where it's encouraged and it's recognized if you do have good entrepreneurial thinking is really really important i think you also hit the nail on the head as well when it comes to resource i think when you enter a company that already exists and you are an innovative person and you have ideas and you buy into the vision and ethos, you'll want to help that company grow. But the resources that are available to you are a big factor in that. So I work for quite a large company with lots of brands that we can learn lots of things from. Naturally, we have the resources and therefore to go and explore ideas and mm. take learnings from other things that we've done. Create in the past new and, ventures from within. And create new yeah. ventures from within. Whereas I think if you're an entrepreneur, you're much more reliant on your own sort of ideas you have to create that culture from scratch and it's molded around you instead of the company you molding yourself to the company Yeah, I I couldn't agree
0: more. I mean, I'm just thinking back, and I genuinely hadn't thought about this before, just sitting here having this conversation today. But a few years ago, um, we kind of pioneered something that we rarely do, but do do sometimes, that we called Lane Lab. And it was that just principle idea of we had a half a day away in a different venue. And, you know, there's many of the team that could make it came down. and, And we had a discussion about different things that we could, different ideas that we could kind of build and grow from within. And one of the ideas that came up that day was creating our own podcast. (laughs) So here we are today, probably four years later, disrupted by COVID from that specific seed of an idea. And it genuinely hadn't dawned on me until we're sitting here that that's probably where that initial idea came from. So uh, a great example of of having a kind of entrepreneurial culture within our uh, business. Spinning the question maybe slightly differently, um, is an entrepreneurial mindset nature or is it nurture what what do you think sarah
1: i would say primarily it's probably nature for me it does come down to someone's personality and how they are in life it tends to be that if someone wants to do a little bit more or chase things they'll be like that in all aspects um, both in their personal life and at work but in saying that i do think that companies can do a fantastic role in nurturing someone to be more or show more kind of intrapreneur qualities because it can be helping someone identify the skills, you know, how can they help our company or how can we help them grow and develop? Um so I do think that employees can take on more responsibility to to help people be more more like an entrepreneur if you just give them a bit more support, help them identify what they can do and how they can do it well.
0: David, what's your take? Is
2: is it nature, nurture, or as Sarah said, is it a combination of both? Uh, Yeah, I'll give you the politician's answer and say I think it's a combination (laughs) of both. I I do believe that it's inherent. The drive to succeed and to do well comes from within you, and whether that be in your professional life, your personal life, sport, anything like that, but in order for you to succeed and for your ideas to to grow and develop, you do need the support of the organisation in order to make you feel comfortable enough to do that i think when i was doing some reading on the topic over the last few weeks what became quite clear is that the companies that do like exp- like have employees who display this level of entrepreneurial thinking are the supporters and they are the ones who will develop their employees in whichever which way they can if you have uh, if you are a company that has a very rigid structure there's not as much openness to the sharing of ideas you're not going to nurture that sort of thinking and potential individuals that our entrepreneur within that company will probably look to go elsewhere where their ideas would be valued further. I think that's a really great way of putting
0: it. And just thinking in in sort of retrospect, you know, back to back to my career. I recall from my early days working in a fast-growing tech company in, in London in the in the late 90s that I was fortunate enough to to gain first-hand experience in in multiple departments, customer services, sales, operations. You know, I even drove a forklift truck for a while um, and, and marketing. But my impatience and my hunger to learn and grow taught me a lot at an early age. And although I wasn't necessarily consciously aware of it at the time, that was my entrepreneurial mindset kind of breaking through, you know, saying, to my boss every maybe twelve six twelve 12 months, whatever it might be, right? I need a new challenge. I need something else, you know, to, to, to continue to grow. And and then I was made redundant in my early twenties. And after my early career break, I decided on a bit of a sideways career move to, to get ultimately get ahead. I had a passion for data and digital marketing and, and I really did land on my feet at a small uh, but dynamic marketing agency in central London. And there I helped to build the media service offering uh, and we achieved some rapid growth for the three years before I moved to Scotland. And I, I tell this story because I was fortunate enough in my first two you know, proper jobs, let's say, that they had an entrepreneurial um, mindset and, and the growth of both of those companies, although very different companies, allowed that to happen. But then, not long after I landed in Edinburgh, I landed a role at another growing independent uh, media agency. Um, But for the first three months, they genuinely didn't know what to do with me. I was like (laughs) a spare part. Um, So I had many restless, sleepless nights, you know, the result of a busy brain, entrepreneurial ideas, but not the capital to start them. Uh, And I recall asking for a meeting with my boss after three months, you know, the owner of the company. And I laid out three ideas of how I could help the business grow. And by the end of that meeting, I knew I wouldn't be there a year later and instead would go on to build my own business because they didn't necessarily allow that entrepreneurial kind of drive within it. It was very much people were in their boxes, if you like, and not able to kind of break out of, of, of that. So I remember the feeling at the end of that meeting being quite quashed and, you know, but ultimately it also helped kind of trigger your springboard, you know, what I was to do next. Um, so that's kind of my story in a, in a nutshell of, of maybe how I turn from, from an
2: entrepreneur into a, an entrepreneur. Got a question. So what made mm. you go instead of when I kind of said earlier, you will go and find another company to work for that would adopt that thinking, what made you go? No, setting up on my own is a better idea than going to another company because you've had that risk versus reward way up it was decided the risk yeah it
0: it was a great question and I think you know for anyone who knows me well whether it was as a stubborn teenager or or my wife they'll you know they'd certainly say that I don't I'm not very good with authority sometimes that I actually like to kind of create my own path and that's not because you know I think it's just liking autonomy, really, rather than sort of a stubbornness or a a kind of some form of other problem with authority. I think think I've always had that drive. And and actually, even if I go back to being a teenager, I probably was telling people that I will run my own business one day. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And I think when you spoke about risk before, you know, we said, oh, there might be more risk being an entrepreneur. But I do think there's risk involved with being an entrepreneur because you're holding I your agree. hand up yeah. yes. you're saying I would like to do this I'll put my neck on the line because I think you know I have the skills to to do that so it might not be financial risk you know you're not taking your own money and invest in it but I do think there's that kind of personal risk of highlighting how you think you can build a company and also making it a company aware of what you would like to do or how you think you can grow it's kind of Sometimes you best just just leaving that, just kind of cracking yeah. on, as you said, just doing your day job. So I think that's probably important to highlight that risk.
0: I absolutely agree that there is risk involved in that because you, you could end up being a bit of a black sheep within a department or within a company if, if the culture isn't there to kind of support that as well. Um, again, I've probably experienced that to, to a slightly lesser degree. To, to elaborate a little bit more on on sort of my own inspiration, David, I think there was almost like another level to this as well when I then became a dad. When I became a father, there was almost something that accelerated that desire to form my own path. And I think then, and this gets a bit... Um, It's not personal, but it gets a bit psychological probably. But I have spoken to other people about this, you know, mums and dads that have experienced the same thing. Because you have an inherent nature to want to protect and then provide, I think, there was all of a sudden it was like that burning ambition grew even faster and 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 make, made me want to do even more because then I had other people to think about you know beyond myself and, and my wife at the time so anyway that's my story but enough about me um Sarah tell us some of your experiences with with entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs you know people that maybe you've come across and you recall their stories or remember some memorable moments with them
1: so kind of, yeah, telling a story similar to yourself. So I was client side for several years and then I thought, right, I'm going to give, I'm going to give agency side a go. Um, and I was looking at job roles that it was minimum five years agency experience. And I thought, God, I, I really can't get into this here. Um, and then uh, the job that I'm currently in came up and it was account manager at Studio LR and they had minimum three years agency experience um but they kind of branded themselves as the gutsy creative agency so in the subject line of my email to them it was I don't have three years agency experience but I've got the guts to apply anyhow um and at that interview it was kind of showing those entrepreneurial qualities that I said okay I, I don't have this experience but here's what else I can do for you and here's I've got the skills and that you have outlined on your job description. Here's evidence backed up, you know, that saying that I can do this and here's what else I can do for the company. And you know, touchwood, I, I got that job and they said after I was hired that the person who was second did have that experience, but they took a risk and you know, they supported the fact that okay, people can bring more into the company as you've said if you give them the opportunity and if you're a employer who supports that really. um. So now I do manage accounts, but I also help with a bit of strategy, a bit of business development as well. So I've had, you know, fantastic experience with them where I've highlighted where I could be an entrepreneur within their company and they've helped foster that really.
0: Fantastic. And David, any entrepreneur or entrepreneurs that have impressed upon you so far in your career? I think
2: the nature of where I work means that there's quite a lot of entrepreneurs just working within the marketing team, the sales team, your commercial revenue team, anything like that. And I I feel like I'm a little bit of a sponge sometimes where I will go into meetings, even though it's maybe not there's not much for me to do in them, but I will just listen and I'll try and take as much in. And I think there's a great value in that because Definitely. you learn what works and how other people in the room react to certain things, but you also learn about entrepreneurial techniques and styles, that maybe you wouldn't like if you saw someone presenting their idea and you i wouldn't have led that way i would have spun the story a different way and then that helps you yourself become the entrepreneur or even just the better professional that you inevitably want to be It's something you're spending your nine to five five days a week doing um mm-hmm. but I, I can't think of any specific people but again i always put that down to the fact that i do see myself as a bit of a sponge and i'll just try and learn from whatever i can yeah i love that um sort of sponge metaphor and and i
1: think people can help that by just letting you sit in on meetings Mm -hmm. um you know david and i work together um and that's one thing that i definitely found at edrington that that kind of open door of if you do want to sit in a meeting if it is insight or analysis branding you can just sit and you will absorb so Mm -hmm. much so i think um managers who maybe entrepreneurial themselves they recognize that letting people just sit in and absorb that yeah that whole sponge mentality can be a massive help to the business
2: And i think without making this an edgington bradley podcast but (laughs) like we have we have a measurement and evaluation process in place that i'm sure lots of clients and agencies have something very similar but it essentially gives you the free reign to go if you've got an idea and you've got the buy-in go for it provided you measure it and you learn from it so that if it's good, we can pivot, we can optimize or we can accelerate and we can go after it because it means that you are accountable for your own idea, but regardless of whether it works or not, you do have some learnings that you can use to like encourage and benefit the business in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that kind of answers my next question, which was <laughs> gonna be entrepreneurial tips for our listeners, but you've touched on it there, David, and, and certainly going back to my tech background, um, we used to have this thing about kind of making it easy to take things to the board, you know, to take those seed ideas and, and they don't necessarily need to be fully costed proposals, but they need to be thought out. They need to be, you know, really considered The, the nuances and the balance needs need to be thought about as opposed to just the, I've got an idea. Can I have five minutes of your time? You know, that, that kind of initial kind of real research understanding of what the opportunity might be enough to plant that seed you know that initial conversation with whoever the right person or people might be within your organization is 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 really key so that would be one of my entrepreneurial tips sarah you, any others
1: um kind of developing on that so also kind of yeah presenting it to the board but also saying how is it going to be easy for them to help me you know kind of identifying what skills you have highlighting the benefits for the company as david as he said can it help them improve pivot um identifying the people who are going to help you but yeah just making sure that it's easy for them to help you can you give them a list of okay if you give me training on this or can we have access to this you know not relying on people to have to do additional work themselves um so even if you have a an entrepreneurial mindset you do have to rely on other people so make it easy for them to help you
2: and i think that comes on to my tip which is about being patient yeah whilst it might be an idea and a thing that you think is of great benefit you've got to spend a lot of time convincing other people who can help yeah. you make that idea a reality convince them that it's also worth their time because they've also got a busy job and are probably balancing many priorities so It's probably true for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that just because it's your priority doesn't mean it's their priority. Therefore, you need to convince them that it should be their priority as well. I think that's a fantastic tip because thinking about it from my own perspective you know
0: business owner perspective then you don't want those entrepreneurs to forget about the day job you yeah. know, to forget <laughs> about the key thing you know they, they've got in, in my instance clients to manage you know specific kind of kpis that they should be focused on so whilst you want to encourage that that culture you want to encourage that entrepreneurial mindset you know you, you can't then create a leaky bucket by somebody taking their their eye mm. off the ball
1: and so kind of another tip that i've just thought of with what you've both said is maybe consider partnering with an entrepreneur so there might be someone in the business who does want to take a bit more risk or they have the financial ability to explore that a bit further could you partner with them and you provide the creative idea um you know the generation of that creativity but maybe someone else could could run with it and make it a a practical thing Mm -hmm. um so yeah as David said kind of be patient, look to other people for help um, and also considering partnering with others who might not be entrepreneur, but they're entrepreneur.
0: Great tips. Um, I really enjoyed that chat and we <laughs> could probably uh, stay for much longer. Uh, Keith, you make it very cosy here. Thank you. <laughs> I hope our listeners enjoyed the conversation and um, I think we've got plenty of inspiration now for, for my final question of the day, which has been fed back as a favourite of the Leading Conversations podcast. The three of us are going out for a meal and we could all bring a guest or two. Your guest could be somebody that you've looked up to in the early days of your careers or someone who gave you a chance. But it could even be someone you don't know but has still inspired you in some way. So who's joining us for supper? David? For oh. tea.
1: For tea.
2: tea? I don't say supper. Right. I don't really say supper either. I don't can, know we add I it, can we add it's dinner and you're both wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's fair. Um, yeah, I, I put a lot of thought into this actually and I ended up settling on where I would like to develop and who would I talk to that would allow me to like even give me a little bit of an insight into how to develop those skills and I think being younger I'm not going to call myself young anymore but younger and in the early stages of my career I'd love to talk to people who've experienced it and done done it and wore the t-shirt and what came back to me quite a lot is I went to Glastonbury for the first time last year and what struck me was the fact that despite being this absolute mammoth festival it had also managed to stick to its core brand roots and heritage and everybody around the world no matter what no matter like where you are in the world would be able to tell you what Glastonbury stood for and it was a platform for good and a platform for change and i work on an iconic brand it's the number one whiskey in the UK if you called it infamous at the start of the podcast because of years gone by of ads that have inspired made people laugh made people cry at some points with the emotional ones as well so i would love to ask them how did you continue to grow and source opportunities for growth and stay culturally relevant whilst maintaining the brand values of the festival and keeping that at the heart at all times so i'd have emily and michael Levis probably sitting there to ask those questions and then i'd probably want a bit of chat as well that and a bit of a laugh and then that's what i remember years ago watching live at the bbc with billy Connolly. Mm. and one of the things when i go into present and probably from talking today is that i always try and prepare myself as much as possible for getting into any sort of presentation pitch meeting podcast today anything like that and billy Connolly said before he went on stage for the live at the bbc he did not know what he was going to go out and do for that hour so I'd love to ask where did you learn the courage and the conviction and your own ability and how can you start to build that into your day-to-day life to as well? To, and and to add- be able to improvise it. and yeah. ad lib. To be able to improvise and ad lib because yeah. it's once you master that technique that takes you up to the next level when it, in terms of your presentation skills. Yeah and your entrepreneurial skills, to be honest, as well. That is a
0: yeah. thoroughly detailed and thought-out <laughs> answer, There, Yeah, there's I, I'm four impressed. of us at the table, so plenty of fits, <laughs> And Sarah, top that. I
1: know, I was like, um, so kind of similar um, to David's answer on, on Billy Connolly, really. I've picked this person consistently for this question for years and years, and that's John Cleese. Um, it was probably my dad's influence, but um, I think he's someone that you would have really kind of, niche deep kind of a a really random but intellectual conversation but then I think if you were cooking at the dinner party I think he'd cause absolute havoc he'd have a one-liner and I think it's good to have people around who will also cause a bit of fun and a bit of havoc as well um I think sometimes questions like this when it's all who you would invite to dinner I think don't underestimate people who you can just also enjoy their company, um, and I think you know, Marketing society Scotland. I think John Cleese would be a really interesting one because you know he found success at at the Fringe Festival, so I think he'd have some uh, some great conversations about Edinburgh and some great stories.
0: It's a g- great idea. I mean, wh- that that sounds like quite a a tea. Or a dinner or a supper, (laughs) doesn't it? Uh, I'm going to add one more person to the mix. Uh, And this is someone who has had success as an entrepreneur. It's a chap probably not very well known in in, in, uh, UK marketing circles, but he's a guy called Jason Stam, And he used to work at AB InBev uh, and was part of their accelerator program. And he was the sort of inspiration behind using a byproduct of the um, brewing process in order to uh, essentially um, launched a uh, consumer-facing nutritional brand out of a byproduct, and this guy is now head of ventures at Pepsi. <laughs> so you know he's he's clearly utilised that early experience in that very innovative um, culture that allowed him to be an entrepreneur to kind of progress his career. And his story is really fascinating. So look him up, Jason Stam. He's welcome to come and tell us all about how he's been from uh, an entrepreneur to an entrepreneur. <coughs> Thanks again for coming along today. I think it's time for us to, to go, unfortunately. So my wholehearted thanks to you both for coming along to the Welsh studio for this insightful conversation today. Thanks, thank you, thank you very
1: that much. That was great. Yeah, really good fun.
0: My thanks, as ever, to Keith at Woosh for his production expertise. Uh, as ever, I hope our listeners have enjoyed our candid conversation and that there's a nugget or two from the experiences and opinions discussed today that our listeners may recall and refer to in the future. As ever, I'm always keen to hear more from our listeners, so please drop me a line at barry at if you'd like to say hello, tell me what you like or dislike about the pod and any topics our listeners would like to hear about for future episodes. Thank you for joining me, Barry Fern from Lane Media on the Leading Conversations podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode of the pod, it's easy to follow for more episodes on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune into podcasts. Just search for Leading Conversations and follow for immediate access to future episodes and our growing back catalogue.